Let us pray together. Dear God, we thank you for the way that you have welcomed us to your table and for the way that we have been able to taste and see your goodness. And we pray for that day, O God, when all the children of the earth will find refuge at your table and in the shadow of your wings. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our series here today, I thought it would be good to begin by inviting all of us to remember the many, many different communion tables that we have all experienced over the years. Especially, I want you to remember the earliest communion tables that you experienced, because often those formed us most deeply and most profoundly. Were the tables that you experienced open or closed? Or were they perhaps ambiguous, fuzzy, don't ask, don't tell? Or were your tables and the celebrations at them joyful or solemn? Or maybe joyful and solemn. They can go together, can't they? Were the tables that you experienced filled with pain or with grace? I want to share with you three tables that I remember in my own life. The first table, and I just <laughs> I love touching this. The first table that I experienced was as a child when my family lived in Jerusalem for five years. We worshiped in the old city of Jerusalem in a Lutheran congregation where all the children were already baptized. And here I came along, an unbaptized child, Mennonite child, and I was warmly welcomed to fully participate in communion. And though I was only seven or eight years old, for four years I took part. And as I sensed that I belonged at this table, I began slowly to believe. I remember another painful, uh, another table and a painful one. When I was a later on older, a baptized adult, when my father joined another part of the Christian family, and I went to worship with him, and when I did, and when it was time for communion, he went forward, and I was not welcome. And I stayed in the pew crying. I mean, think about it. Communion, communion had divided my own family. I also think about the more recently the wonderful, wonderful communion tables that we have shared together here in this church, especially at our Monday Thursday services. And I remember the intimacy of those times as we broke bread together 
at your dining room tables, at your kitchen tables. I don't know what it is, but it always feels like such a Jesus thing to break bread at one another, in one another's homes, at one another's tables. As your pastors, Elise and I have discovered that we all hold many, many varied and complicated feelings about this central ritual of our faith. Amen? It's complicated, isn't it? Some of you find communion deeply, deeply nourishing and plead with us sometimes to schedule it more often here in our church. I won't call you out. Some of you struggle mightily with the imagery of being nourished by Jesus, by his body, and by his blood. Some of you have crushingly painful memories of when communion was preceded by council meetings with the bishop who would sit in this back room in our church and where each of you would enter one by one and be asked, are you in right relationship with your neighbor and with God? And I think it also included a reading sometimes beforehand of the conference's rules of discipline. And we had to abide by all of that in order to be worthy to come to the table. And then others of you lament that we have lost this sense of mutual accountability and covenant that was fostered in these gatherings together. As I said, it's complicated. It has been said that no other faith practice says more about what we believe about grace, about discipleship, about the place of children among us, and about the church and its mission than how we practice communion together. As Christians, we do this in such multivaried and different ways according to our theology and practice. And so during these five Sundays, we will be asking one another in this congregation, does the way we practice communion together in our church really reflect our deepest core values? And during this series, we will be exploring the Lord's Supper and also all the many other tables and meals that Jesus shared with his followers, with seekers, with broken people, with the committed and the uncommitted. And did you notice today that he shared even with Judas? My goodness, even when he knew that Judas was about to betray him. We'll be remembering that the scandalous people that Jesus chose to eat with, his 
table fellowship was one of the main reasons he was killed. And along the way, we hope that we can reclaim and reimagine and reinvigorate the practice of communion here in our church. So today's gospel reading reminds us of something that, I don't know about you, but I often forget. That on the night of Jesus' last supper with his disciples, they are keeping the Jewish Passover together. And so today we want to increase our understanding and appreciation for this Jewish tradition that shaped Jesus' spirituality and what we now know as communion. This story of the Passover and of the exodus out of Egypt, of God's deliverance of the Hebrews, of Moses and Aaron and Miriam from their enslavement and oppression is the central story in the Hebrew scriptures. If the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures were a topographical map, it would be the great Mount Everest. And over the centuries, this powerful liberation story has become the source of fierce hope for oppressed peoples, including the Jewish people of Jesus' day under the brutal thumb of Rome, and more recently for African American people under white enslavement and white supremacy. Let my people go. The Passover tells every oppressed people that they are loved and valued and favored by God. Favored by God. The Bible is emphatic about this. The orphan, the widow, and the immigrant have a special place in God's heart. God favors some in order to be fair to all. Think about it, those of you who are parents. You have a big kid and a little kid. You have to treat them differently in order for there to be fairness between them. And the early church, this is so beautiful, comes to see Jesus as the new Moses. Just as Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, where does Jesus preach his great sermon? On the mount. Jesus, just like Moses, is leading his people on a new exodus out of their bondage and their slavery. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God passes over 
the sins of the world through Jesus. It's all Passover and Exodus imagery, reimagined and reclaimed. And this morning, I want to make sure that we don't miss something absolutely crucial about this Passover sermon. Did you hear it at the end of Alan's reading? The spiritual formation of our kids. When keeping the Passover, we hear in Exodus today, in our reading today, our children will ask us, why do we do this? What does this mean? And because of this, at the Passover Seder, if you've ever been to one, Jewish kids have the central role. They are the ones who get to ask the crucial question. What is it? Why is this night different than all other nights or any other night? Do you see it? Kids are not pushed to the side, but they have a central role to play at the table. And then children and adults reenact together the story of God's mercy and liberation. It's so beautiful. They quickly gulp down their food. Did you hear that urgency? You know, eat quickly, put your sandals on, be ready to leave, to go out the door to watch and to wait in eagerness. This meal is nourishment for their long, hard trek to freedom. They are being energized to flee the empire. They are being energized to be forever restless unsatisfied with any status quo of oppression, inequality, or fear. And as a deep sense of belonging is fostered in Jewish children, a deep sense of believing and trusting in God begins. Participating in this meal is not the reward of faith, no, no, no. It is the means of fostering and nourishing faith. Do you hear the difference? Not the reward, but the means of fostering faith. You know, in recent years, I confess that my understanding of our children's faith development and formation has been changing. 20 years ago when I was a pastor in Chicago, I used to talk with our young people about baptism and I would call it their first step of faith, but no more. Today I feel much more aware of the reality that our kids often come into the world already with this mysterious relationship with God already forming. 
And if we pay attention, we can already see evidence of their loving and trusting connection with God. Just yesterday, Danette and I were remembering that back when our daughter Jasmine was very small, we went to uh, Danette's grandmother's funeral, and we told Jasmine that Grandma was no longer with us and had gone home to God. And she said to us, wasn't Grandma already with God? When we shift our understanding here about the formation of our children, then a child dedication, for example, what we do there is we join together with parents in nurturing the relationship with God that is already in embryonic form in that child. And baptism then is not the beginning of someone's faith journey with God, but their emphatic and public yes to God and yes to our church. It's a shift in focus and understanding. As your pastors, Elisa and I want you to know that we have been feeling a growing sense of discomfort and even heartache with our current practice of communion at East Chestnut Street of limiting participation only to those who are baptized. Why? And this has been unfolding over each of the years that I've been here. Because we are realizing that in our times, the period of adolescence and young adulthood is now often stretching out across our kids' teens, and as Danette and I are discovering, into their 20s and even beyond. And if our young people are not yet ready to be baptized, we are excluding them from our Lord's table during some of their most crucial and faith-shaping years, decades. We are excluding them at the very time in their lives when they need to belong and feel and know that they belong, most of all. Our practice, our congregation's practice of Giving a grape and a blessing to our children usually works until adolescence. But then because of the awkwardness of getting graped, many of our kids, our young people, stop coming to the table. And it becomes yet one more reason for them not to come to worship at all. As a growing number of Mennonite congregations are realizing, 
we have been denying unbaptized children and adults a place at the communion table because of our church tradition and culture and not because of a clear biblical mandate or because of the teachings of Jesus. I just read that a couple weeks ago and it still shocked me. So let me say it again. We have been denying unbaptized children and adults a place at the communion table because of our church tradition and culture and not because of a clear biblical mandate or the teachings of Jesus. And so during this series, Elisa and I are asking you, our congregation, to consider the possibility of opening our communion table to all people. Open to all unbaptized children. Open to all unbaptized youth. Open to all unbaptized seekers and guests among us. No more ambiguity. No more don't ask, don't tell. But instead, come to the table. An open welcome. Come taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Come meet the risen Jesus here at this table. Be nourished by his grace and forgiveness. Come find your people, your peeps here. And come follow Jesus with us. Elisa and I realize that we are proposing a very big and radical change for our church. And so we'll want to study the scriptures together as we're doing during this series and to process carefully what we are thinking and how we sense the Spirit is leading us. But as your pastors, we want you to know, and I say this from the depths of my own heart, we're not doing this for fuzzy inclusivity. We are doing or proposing this change for deeply missional and, dare I say it, even evangelical reasons. We believe that participation in communion can foster a desire for baptism for discipleship, and for becoming a follower of Jesus, just as it did in my own life. And in these tumultuous times, we want to lean on the rituals of our church like never before. It's all hands on deck, folks. We believe that communion is not the reward of faith, but the means of nourishing and fostering faith. As our own dear Clayton Charles once told me, quoting Pope Francis, you've heard this before, communion is not a prize for the perfect, for the worthy, for the good enough. 
It is powerful medicine for the weak, the hungry, and the thirsty. Amen. I invite us now to turn to the handout that is at the end of our pews in the wonderful color of purple.